I'm Sam Mitchell, and these are my stories. Hi, folks. How are you a good day today? And let me first welcome you to Autism Rocks and Rolls. Now, before we begin, I must know that I'm not a doctor psychiatrist. If you're starting to actually diagnosed with autism, please see a physician, at least based on my experiences. You also want to write to the intro and natural. They're found on danielbookie.com and mediafiresound.com. And also, I have a mission to interview with all of you. The mission of Autism Rocks and Rolls is to take the stigma off of autism and other conditions and many things are disabilities. People on the spectrum are not broken and do not need to be fixed. Those have conditions or abilities not to be pitied. There's nothing to be sorry about. I also have some paid for the following. I want to thank Dean Kelly and the Night Owl for their kind donation of shirts for our gala as well as their superb printing abilities. This is just one of the many reasons why I want to mention them. Night Owl Promotions has been in operation at Eltsville and Spencer, Indiana for 20 years. The best and most dedicated individuals work for this family-run company. You should get your printing needs met at Night Owl Promotions. They are able to help, and as of today, they are our biggest gala sponsors since they bought the Platinum Package. We also need to thank John and Norris. A huge thank you for her because of the work she is doing for Autism Rocks and Rolls. She is our decorator for the event, our caterer, and she is busting her tail to get silent auction donations. Thank you, Jonna. We love you. And finally, we must highlight Bloomington, Indiana Smokeworks. Not your ordinary barbecue joint. This one is different because they offer ribs, brisket, chicken, sausage, and homemade southern side dishes in addition to the barbecue. Guests will think they are tasting Tennessee when they visit. They also have some people i like to thank. First, ARAR needs to thank Liz Monroe and the Doug Flutie Foundation because as of now, we are ambassadors for the Doug Flutie Foundation. This foundation just wants to help me out for free. Thank you for all the help you will be giving to me, and I am so excited to be collaborating with this 25-year-old foundation. We can even talk about another connection because we spoke to Lalita Durba from Alpha Fia Omega Sorority, and this IU sorority will be helping out with our gala by spreading the word and even possibly coming. There is more because we also talked to Hadley Hussey, also a student from IU, and she'll be assisting too. Thank you all for the help. There is even one more connection to mentioned because several weeks ago i talked to business consultant and founder of creed consulting jr spear mr spear gave us some great advice on how to improve our business feel free to check his information out and as of today is officially autism acceptance month and that also means our girl ariel will be posting some new t-shirts along many items make sure to go to her website i can now add two speed engagements under my belt because i went to huntingburg indiana for the sky's the limit resource fair and then the following week i traveled to washington dc to speak at the 2023 Neurodiversity in the Workplace Conference. The fair was about those with special needs having a space, and the Workplace Conference was about those on the spectrum finding employment. Extra thanks goes to Elizabeth Albrand for inviting me to the fair, and another thanks goes to Stacey Herman and Dee Carlingo for setting up the session. I attended the 2023 PodFest Global Online event and presented a case study because I enjoy the in-person PodFest so much, I went back for the online one. I appreciate everyone who came to my case study. I hope you take in all the information information on event planning. I got back in touch with the Fowler family and assisted them with their adult Easter egg hunt. I had a great time and sold some shirts. Also, we had our monthly board meeting. It was a very productive one. And through this meeting, we decided that an ARAR limousine will be picking up our keynote speaker, Rich Beto, on C225, giving the beat to Rich Beto for more information. Plus, I have done two networking events last month. I did the Rivertown Virtual Networking event, which was through the Tina Campbell. I also did another clubhouse. The room I did was called Am I the Problem? This room did have a mental health aspect regarding those who felt like they were a problem. I sure made some new friends and connections at both events. 
And since the last episode, I've been on several podcasts. I was on the Mental Health Monday podcast with Kelly Melissa Reinhart, Paul G's Corner podcast with Paul G. Newton, Next Gen podcast with Deanna Roberts, Dr. Heidi, the Business Psychology podcast with Dr. Heidi Mina, the Golden Spoon podcast with Mikhail Hill, along with his co-host Jeremy, and the Screaming Chewy show with Screaming Chewy. What awesome podcast, everybody. Now, folks, we right back right here and add from the barn on Maryland Ridge. So let's get to it. There is a hidden gym in eastern Greene County, folks. Fowler's Pumpkin Patch and the barn on Maryland Ridge Wedding Barn. Autism Rocks and Rolls is very proud to tell you about our friends, Perry and Renee Fowler, and their place of business. Both Fowler Pumpkin Patch and the barn on Maryland Ridge is a relaxing drive approximately 15 minutes from the heart of Bloomington, Indiana, and an hour south of Indianapolis. You can find them at 5347 South Green County Line Road, Bloomington, Indiana, 47403. The property has numerous picture locations, including several rolling fields, antique tractors, red and rustic barns, trees, and much more. Customized wedding packages are offered on their website. The surrounding area also provides several hotels in which to have your guests stay for your destination wedding. Also, Fowler's Pumpkin Patch is a family-owned and operated seasonal pumpkin patch. It's the perfect place to take your family for some fall fun. Enjoy picking out pumpkins, hay rides, a corn maze, and a petting zoo. Call the Fowlers today at 812-327-4895 or 812-325-6022. All right, folks, we're back. And yes, you'll definitely hear the words I do at this wedding barn. This episode consists of several Bloomington, Indiana, ABA autism clinics, and one in Oklahoma. First, we have Leah Walden from Stonebelt. Established in 1958, Stonebelt Like Me is a nonprofit organization that wants to give those like myself a voice. Their mission is, and I quote, we believe the uniqueness, worth, and the right to self-determination of every individual. Therefore, it is our mission in partnership with the community to prepare, empower, and support people with developmental disabilities and their families to participate fully in the life of the community. Plus, we have Leslie Lynch from Unlocking the Spectrum. Unlocking the Spectrum was established with the objective of providing all autistic children with the finest applied behavior analysis or ABA therapy to ensure your child achieves their maximum potential they go above and beyond. Finally, we have Lori Frederick from the Griffin Promise Autism Clinic. I first heard about them when she gave me the opportunity to speak at her conference. Lori Frederick is the Executive Director of the Griffin Promise Autism Clinic in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. She is also the mom to Griffin who has autism. Lori is a board-certified cognitive and autism specialist with an advanced degree in organizational psychology. Lori is very passionate about helping caregivers navigate their autism journey and learning new and innovative ways to bridge the gap between our neurodiverse and professional communities. Please, everyone, help me and give these people a warm welcome to Autism Rocks and Rolls. How's everybody doing today? Doing great. Wonderful. Very well. Of course. So my first question to you is what does being associated with an autism clinic mean to you? Well, I can go first. This is Leslie from Unlocking the Spectrum. I have a lot of family members who have the autism diagnosis. They have a lot of other neurodivergent diagnoses as well. And I got in the field when I started working in special ed in a school and felt that there were a lot of restrictions and a lot of things that we couldn't do to help navigate children to be their best self. For me, this is Leah Walden and I'm with Stonebelt. Specifically, I'm with the Milestones. We are clinical and health services. And we offer therapy, traditional like talk therapy, as well as we have psychiatry on board here. I came to Stonebelt actually via my bonus son, kind of just looking at the maybe inequities, restrictions that were placed on him in a school system versus my other children. So that was my original heart's interest is to figure out how does he have the same opportunities, the same experiences that my other children have with his unique set of skill. And then just as I watch 
there's so many difficulties, I think, in seeking treatment for depression or anxiety. If you have another diagnosis, it just comes down to that we're all people. So we need to figure that out. That's a key word right there is restrictions. And I get that we all need restrictions in life. But I think some of these restrictions are just completely and utterly ridiculous. I agree with you, Sam. <laughs> this is Lori Frederick. I'm with the Griffin Promise Autism Clinic. Being associated with an autism clinic is probably the most passionate and wonderful thing I've ever got to do in my life. I feel very, very blessed to get to be doing the work that I'm doing. I worked in the corporate world for a long time before I did this. And I've met the most incredible people along this journey. It started because, I mean, obviously for my son, it's named after him, but I didn't come up with that name. It was the team that was working with him, but it really was about what people saw in Griffin's story and how he was changing and what we were doing for him and realizing that we didn't really have anything like that in the Midwest. What did people so, see in his story? So what would happen is I was teaching college courses at the time and I was teaching it in like organizational psychology. I was also doing project management for the airline at the time. And it was so funny because people would hear about how my non-speaking son all of a sudden was like talking a whole lot and making a lot more eye contact. And they're like, okay, well, where are you going for therapy or what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, well, we're doing it at home. And they were like, what? And so a lot of people wanted to just come to our house and see our setup, including the teachers in the school program he was in, which was phenomenal. And so it started by me helping his teachers and some of the other teachers in his school, like figure out ways to make their classroom not so overstimulating and then going from there. So when people kind of heard these things then I started getting asked to speak on the college campuses where I was like teaching and helping to speak to the other programs, like come speak to the speech pathology students, come speak to the occupational therapy students, come speak to the special education program. And they all wanted to know like, what are you doing? And they wanted to meet Griffin kind of thing. And so what happened is a lot of people kind of spread the word, the same people who were helping Griffin to help their kid or their grandkid or their niece or nephew or whatever. And it just blew up really fast. And then we opened the clinic and it's been amazing ever since. So what you're saying is Griffin became a celebrity almost. Yes. It's quite funny. And Sam, I'm sure you're used to this too. Like it's funny. Sometimes we'll be out somewhere and people go, is that Griffin? And I'll be like, yes. And then I get a little nervous. My mom nerve kicks in and I go like, who are you or where are you from? And they'll just be like, oh, we heard you speak somewhere or we saw him on stage because he does do like something called stars on stage where he gets to perform in theater, which is really cool. So yeah, he kind of became an overnight celebrity in our area, which was really cool, Sam. That is pretty cool. Just it's funny what you could do with a story and autism. I just find it that I think nowadays it's becoming more aware of it and we're definitely more understanding of it but there's still some people out there let's just be honest who will not come to terms with it now what were your initial thoughts when you decided you were going to run an autism clinic i'll go ahead and go again uh i was terrified <laughs> that would probably be my first one i was terrified because what we were doing was a little different than what was the norm in therapy and so even though we had all these people who were asking for our help you really just don't know like what are going to be the the paths that you were going to have to take with insurance with schools with doctors you always wonder like are we going to be able to do what we're setting out to do like we have this mission and we have all these values and stuff that we want but are we truly going to be able to make it happen but then also the joy of watching these individuals from the first ones that walked through our doors to the ones that are walking through now eight nine years later and just seeing how far they've come and the relationships we've got to build with them and how much they've taught us i actually approached it a little different yes scared but still i'm the clinical director for our company and when i became the clinical director so I oversee all of our clinics. I actually came in with the notion that I wanted to change the image of what ABA is. A lot of times 
people look at applied behavior analysis and they think that we're trying to put kids in a box. You know, we tried to teach them very similar skills across all the boards and then really try to make robots. And that's not what actually applied behavior analysis is. So my goal was to actually start to educate and teach people how to effectively apply applied behavior analysis um, in multiple settings so kids can be their own advocate, but also work on behavior reduction, where we can work on early intervention in a fun, playful way. And then we can work on kids who are older who maybe didn't have access or wasn't able to get early intervention and teach them at a fast rate all the things that they kind of need to be caught up on with choices involved in giving them a say in what they're doing and how they're doing it. For me, much maybe like Leslie's, I came into this clinic as a therapist, just been in within the last year that I've moved into directorship. A bit overwhelming to think about behavior supports, skills supports, rec therapy supports, nursing supports, therapy supports, kind of all in a package. A joint effort that we do have with Stonebelt also is employment. They are a different unit, but they specifically take all of our unique and talented folks, regardless of their label or diagnoses, and try to help them find their spot in the community, right? Find their job, find their, reduce anxious behaviors, give them some skills that allow them maybe a different approach or advocating for themselves is a huge one, right? So intimidated at first, to say the least, joyful as a therapist, because you do get to watch those skills grow and develop and see somebody that maybe was minimalized or marginalized in some way or their family because of this diagnosis. And all of a sudden, there's power in that. And there's confidence in that. Wow. So you basically kind of grew from the rank? Yeah. Based on observations, how do you think someone with autism's brain operates? That's a big question, Sam. And in some ways, not terribly different than our average brain. I think that a lot of the young folks that I get to work with here bring with them a sense of creativity that goes untapped in many of us. I think that they bring maybe a different way of analyzing, absorbing, observing to things that may be the average person doesn't pay attention to or takes for granted. I see a lot of detail orientation, a lot of joy when they find those things and when they're recognized for those things. Unfortunately, as you said earlier, there are some folks that just don't get it. And folks end up here, talk to our group about how do I make these people get it or how do I not care that they don't? I'm going to go do my life, right? And that's the joyful part. And that's the part that I love to see. So I guess that brain looks a little different in just some brilliant that not all of us get to see every day. Well, from a therapist's point of view, what are some of the things that someone else would take for granted versus us? Oh, I think sometimes small gestures like that might just seem like, oh, that's a part of the process. And so we just do it where others might expect that response or wait for that response. Or there are steps that some of, of a teen group that I work with are like, why do we do that? That's just a part of it. Why do people expect that? Why is that going to be on a checklist? It's a pattern for us. It's a social norm. It's a documented way for us to do things, right? And this group of teens that I work with always seems to be able to take that book or that paper and be like, but Leah, right? And find something else to build with it. Yeah, I can see someone thought as a masking, why are we using silverware? How does that make sense? <laughs> we don't need this. We can eat with our hands. Yeah, it's that kind of stuff, right? I 
always find it amazing how resourceful children with autism and young adults with autism really are. Because if they don't know how to do something, they figure it out. And that resiliency and effort is amazing. And that's a skill that I feel like you can build on that most people actually bypass and don't even recognize that people with an autism diagnosis has. You know, we have littles who don't know how to speak. And let me tell you, they're going to find every which way to get that cookie that they were looking for. You have preteens who want to know more information about others, and they're going to find every which way to get that information. And then you have adults confused on how to maybe do a process or how to go ask how to complete their work task for the day. It may not be the neurotypical way to do it, but they sure figure it out. I'm in full agreement with what Leslie was saying, that's why I'm sitting here nodding so much. I definitely think that a neurodiverse brain is like so much better at multitasking than those of us who are trying to keep up with the social skill plus the whatever's going on. I definitely think that they're resilient. I think that they're able to accomplish so much. And what I have learned here just in the last few years, even as I've got to know more adults on the spectrum, especially those that are non-speakers who are using different forms um, to communicate. The big one is the fact they're like, I think just like you, my motor planning is just not like yours. And therefore my body doesn't match what my brain is saying. And I think that's where things can be very different for those that do suffer from apraxia also is like just the fact that their body is doing a lot of different behaviors that maybe we would seem at see as not, like not being typical or whatever. But one of my dear, dear friends, he is a non-speaker and his words were so eloquent and he is brilliantly, brilliantly smart. And the things that he tells me, I was like, if I just saw you walking down the street, my assumptions in an old way of thinking would be, oh, he doesn't comprehend the stuff that I'm saying. And that's very, very sad and very judgmental of people who do that because they just don't realize the capacity to what a neurodiverse brain can do because it is amazing the layers to what is there. I've even watched my own son be typing one thing to answer a question that someone said while staring off the other direction and saying something totally different. But he's answering somebody's question at the same time. So I'm like, that's not something I can do. I would have to stop, focus. I would agree with you, but you're talking about multitasking. Well, it comes to that phrase where they say, when you met one person on the autism spectrum, you met one. I bet a lot of your sons are not like Griffin who can do those multiple tasks at one time. Not everybody that I work with, but I'm meeting more and more. What their brain is doing doesn't match what their body is doing. And that's what they keep telling me. That's where things come out that I'm like, wow, okay. I don't know. It's just very, very cool to me to get to learn from the experts themselves. So when I get to work with adults on the spectrum and they're just telling me, this is how I feel. This is what I want. This is what worked for me. This is what didn't work for me. It's just another indicator that I will at some point in time probably meet someone who's at least a portion like them because we do know that everybody's so different but maybe something that they teach me will help one of the other hundred kids that I'm working with in their journey too yeah I mean that's what it says right there on your background love the journey right now, what is the most rewarding and the most difficult part of having an autism clinic? I can go. Rewarding is being able to see the milestones that your clients make going from even communication, Lori talked about, and adapting that and getting better at it to be able to self-advocate, working through maybe some problem behaviors that they've had that's gotten them kicked out of school and seeing them get back into that environment and thrive. Seeing adults who everyone thought maybe that they weren't going to be able to live, you know, maybe in an assisted living facility, be able to thrive in that and be able to live outside of their parents' home and see the 
independence there. So there's a lot of really great things that I've been able to be a part of. But the hard part, I think, is having such a passion for what we do and finding people to employ that have the same passion. I would agree with you, actually, because let's be honest, not everyone is affected by autism. I met a lot of people who are, but there's a whole population out there that is not affected by either autism or a condition. They're just neurotypical people. Neurotypical people are not the nicest sometimes and they don't really care. It doesn't affect them. Why would they? Well, in my opinion, you don't need to care, but you need to at least know that it's here. Yes, or not understanding that everyone learns in a different way. So how you were taught isn't how everybody else learns. So we got to figure out how to fix that mindset and teach those skills in a different way. So yes, I agree with you completely, Sam. I would just follow that up what Leslie was saying about figuring out how to teach that like two plus two is four but so is three plus one there's a ton of ways and I think it's really important that we spend that time tapping into the whys and hows of that right and making that again an experience that everybody can participate in because we all bring something unique and powerful to that table to share and so I think that that is one of the things that Stonebelt really does work hard to power and support those efforts like where and how do we have a more inclusive community i think for me the most difficult sam is going to be obvious the red tape it's what insurances allow what insurances don't allow what legislatures will pass and what legislatures won't pass and what services and supports and benefits. Music therapy may be really innovative and helpful for one client, but it's not in their waiver package or in their MRO package. Even within the systems that are supposed to be helping systems, there are restrictions and it is maddening. <laughs> right. So th it's a law blocking you. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of that. Just out of curiosity, how you've broken it though? Like, I'm not trying to say like intentionally like break it, but have you like try to, you know, sneak out a little bit, I guess? I think our teams do a really good job of collaboration and trying to find the fit. Like, like, okay, so maybe music therapy is not there, but maybe rec therapy is. And will we have a set of instruments and concerts and things that we can incorporate some of those important factors, right? And what is the goal of using that modality? As Lori was talking about earlier, as you start a business and you start these things, we have a great vision. We have a great mission statement. Why are you not supporting it, right? <laughs> Why can't you see how great it is? For the rewards, going back to when you see someone come out of that shell and speak for themselves and say in front of a guardian or a school teacher or an employer for myself I need this I would like to partner with you to do this and for them to be able to feel confident enough and powerful enough in their skill to be able to say that is amazing to watch we have a lot of our clients out in community jobs here in Bloomington and when they come in to tell us about those experiences and you hear them like do a conflict resolution with a coworker, and you know that wouldn't have been a strong skill set before because of being different or labeled and they might not have the confidence to do that so some of that self-advocacy is huge just getting to watch and then seeing the realization of those goals right like i just want to be able to xyz and now i can and that is pretty incredible whether that's living on their own whether that's shopping for their own clothes whatever that goal is to watch them traverse that path to get there is incredibly and rewarding. let's think about this too even though they may not be able to shop for their own clothes who says they can't be a ceo for a five thousand dollar business exactly 
And Sam, every time I talk to an insurance company, I'm fighting. So don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. We have to be worried about you, Lay. Start throwing chairs. We'll see what happens next. <laughs> I would say that the best thing, obviously, is seeing an individual who achieves the goals that they want. The things that you can tell that they've been just wanting so bad to be able to convey a feeling or an emotion about something. I love watching caregivers because as a parent myself, I remember like, you know, the things that I wanted to hear so bad was like when we're upset or we're crying or whatever, being able to tell me, does something hurt or are you sad or are you sick? Like what's happening? So I think that's huge. I love watching kids, you know, whether they're saying their first words or given their first hugs, that's not a backwards hug or not forceful. And I would say the hardest thing is definitely the funding. I mean, a hundred percent that that's where it comes down to. It's always heartbreaking to me to be working with a family and seeing a child progress at their rate and that they're doing phenomenal and then see like that there's an insurance blocking for whatever purpose. Maybe it's because they're doing well. So that the thought is like, oh, well, they're doing well enough now that like, we can cut back on how much they get. And then we see, we see that happen. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're back six months later saying, okay, now we had, you know, a slide back because we didn't continue doing what we were doing. Or for our clinic, we do a lot of looking at new and innovative ways of doing things. And so a lot of times those aren't like insurance approved yet. And so we have to do exam, kind of what you were asking Leah. And I'm sure both of these wonderful ladies do the same thing. You do what's within your ethical bubble. As long as you can document and show and stay within the ethics of what your license is and what you're supposed to be doing, then I feel like anybody who's passionate of working with this caseload of clients, that you're going to push it out to the very edges of that bubble to get the needs met for your client. Well, let's just talk about the insurance a little bit. Was there ever a time where, and I'm just curious myself, and I think we need to know the stories that you went to the insurance and you had a fight for one of the most ridiculous situations? Like, what was that situation? I'm just curious myself. We have to do this often, actually. <laughs> I have one right now where a child is thriving, 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 thriving in a low-tech AAC program. And unfortunately, even just saying low-tech AAC, that that was an indicator of saying that's not been researched enough by this organization and therefore we can't do that. So we will no longer pay for that child to come. And this family has three kids on the spectrum. And this kid has miraculously, miraculously come so far in the past year. And literally they're pulling all coverage for them to continue to get therapy. We've gone back twice to just kind of explain why. We have medical records, we have doctors, we have developmental pediatricians, everybody talking about how great this kid is doing. And yet he is so close to being able to do a lot of it independently. We're talking like we can see it like just another six or eight weeks and he would be phenomenal. But the parents have three children with special needs and they cannot afford to do it without insurance. And so now we're looking at every possible grant, scholarship, go fund me, whatever, to help cover the cost of having them there. And that's where it gets really, really sad is that the insurance company is just saying, sorry, it's just written in our books that unless this other governing body says that they like that approach, then pretty much nobody can do it. Have you tried Google Grants? I know they do it a lot of times. <laughs> We are reaching out to a lot. I'm gonna. I'm definitely going to check Google Grants. There are a few places that are out there that we're doing. Our biggest fear right now, Sam, is the fact that he's not the only kid using this approach. And so if we start to go down this path, we're probably going to see 18 to 20 kids lose funding. And that's the part that's kind of heartbreaking because these parents are just begging us for help. We become very good at writing goals that are on those outer bubbles, behavior analytically, because then they'll probably get approved more often. I have printed out research and faxed it, emailed it, and shown it on screen during Zoom calls, phone calls with insurance companies to fight for services, just to show them that there is actual research to 
support what we're doing and that what they're doing actually goes against a lot of like insurance um, laws, I guess, in some states. So a lot of times insurance will start cutting because of age. And, you know, I the thought process that autism goes away <laughs> is not something that will ever be okay to me. So there's different things that come up with, with people with a diagnosis at different stages of life. Sometimes a huge hormone boost at a child development age will cause a whole big uproar in what they're doing when they were doing phenomenally. Eh, I'm sorry about that. And when you say it's an everyday thing, I don't know how you guys keep a smile on your face with them. It's very hard. Sometimes I'm glad there's no video. <laughs> yeah. Let's just put, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> What advice would you give to others who want to start an autism clinic? I would say, go for it. Man, we need so many more places. People always think, oh, that's a competitor or whatever. And I'm like, autism is the number one diagnosis in children today. It is not a one size fits all. We have talked about that before. Every kid is different. There's so many different approaches that are all going to fit different people. We need more and more and more. One of the saddest things for me is when our waiting list starts getting long. And I'm like, man, I wish there's someone else who was doing this. Or I try to recommend another place that maybe they can go until they can get in there or anything just to kind of get people started. I would agree with that. While we're a, you know, a larger not-for-profit in that way, when I do have to refer out because of insurance change or a family moving out of maybe our area or something, it's very difficult to find those resources. And it's very difficult to say confidently to a family, this place, this center, this counselor, this engagement will meet your need in your new location, or this school does this better. It all does that sense of competition that Lori spoke to. I like to think about cooperation. I like to think about collaboration. I like to think where are those partnerships if we can't do it here because of restriction, because of funding, clients moving, things like that, then I would love the option of saying, I read about, or I heard about, or I spoke with, and I know these people will take the wheel where we've left. You move to go to college. Talking about aging out, that's a deal. Here in Bloomington, we're a college town. And so students come from their hometowns with their under 18 ASD diagnoses. It doesn't disappear because they turned 18 and now they're in a new college environment. They may be moved away from home and some of those skills need propped up or they need a place that feels safe to explore that as they go into that environment and that diagnosis no longer exists because you're 18. Hmm. Oh, I struggle with that. We need more resources and we need more practitioners willing to say, you do this well. How can I do this well? I do this well. How can I teach you to do that well? Let's be honest. In the business world, there's a lot of competition. Why are we competing when we can help each other? I don't see a problem with helping as long as there's a benefit, but... If there isn't even, let's just do something good. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of speak to what Leah's saying. We've actually had a couple of things. So Seymour, Indiana, which isn't far from Bloomington, you guys in Bloomington, we have a center there that has a wait list of 68 kids because there isn't any other centers around. And, you know, we cannot grow that fast and still provide effective services. So, you know, we're trying to grow as quickly as we can that is still providing the best service possible. And that's heartbreaking because then that means there's 68 kids in more of a country rural area who aren't getting the services, who need it the most. We've also had some kids transfer from other clinics. 
talk about collaboration, like Leah was discussing, because we take older kids who are very higher magnitude in behavior. So we don't shy away from those kids. And there's some clinics, unfortunately, who don't have the resources, the experience with them. So there's been times that we've sat down with other BCBAs from other centers. There's been times that we've talked over Zoom meetings or phone calls, and we've discussed the paths and where they got to and talked about, you know, the family dynamic and got a whole lot of background for that family and was able to take on that kid and be successful. So there is good collaboration with our field. I just hope that everyone can continue that mindset because, you know, again, right now, unfortunately, a lot of the behavior analysts in our field are young. They've only had their certification for a few years. So we're a relatively young field. We need to kind of continue to grow. And I think mentorship within that needs to be one of those things we grow in. So now I'm just curious for all of you. And I feel like I know the answer for a couple of you, but one I don't know. Or you may have to remind me with one of you. How did your company hear about my podcast? So... I think you've done some things here in Bloomington. You're a pretty well-known celebrity in our area. And there was an outreach in the email that said, hey, would y'all be interested in doing this? And the more I began to look at it, I was like, this dude's everywhere. Like, yeah, we know Sam. We also have a clinic in Bloomington, and I know all of my staff have heard about you or seen you somewhere. And when I told them that I was going to be, that we got invited, same with Leah, through an email to be on this podcast, I had some people ask if they could come to my house and be on it as well. So you are a local celebrity in Bloomington. Congrats, Sam. Sam mentioned this earlier. We were very, very blessed that Sam was our keynote speaker last year at the Eastern Oklahoma Autism Conference. And so I had heard about Sam kind of through social media, actually, in looking at some different autism podcasts and then got a chance to talk with your mom. And we kind of like started emailing back and forth and then thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to learn more and to get to hear from Sam and what he's done, which was really, really cool. And I What's also really cool, and I just have to throw this out there, is that I think since the conference, you've actually interviewed several of our like mutual acquaintances now from Oh, I know one of them. Jack. Yeah, Jack, which is super cool. Jack is a really dear friend of mine from Autism Optimism International. Literally talking the other day with Elizabeth Vossler, who's with Spelling to Communicate, and she brought up Sam also. So it was like, it's really, really cool. Like, small world. We all know each other, so I love it. It is comical. And for the listeners, C203 playing around with Jack Mason Goodall for more information. But yeah, what a great guy. And he was pretty good to speak to. I think you took a lot of information from him. And believe it or not, you were actually the first big speaking gig I did. So thanks for the opportunity in return. I appreciate it. We loved having you and we learned so much from you. So we appreciate it. I think we have a lot of our clients as well as a lot of our community now follow your podcast. And I get to hear from people that are listening. So it's really cool that a little bit further into the Midwest for Big Jack supporters also. <laughs> well, now I'm just curious. What have you learned from me? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I think for us, it kicked off what we did this year at conference, which was a little bit different in the fact that we kind of went from this overarching, let's talk a little bit about everything to really about how to hone in on like inclusion in our community and like bringing businesses into like really starting to get to know neurodivergent individuals better because we were like, we want these businesses to see all the creativity that can be useful in their businesses. And I think that's what was really cool is because some of the people had watched or heard when you spoke at our conference. And that was really cool for them because they weren't really seeing or hearing from adults on the spectrum who had become so successful like you. And so they were like, okay, wait a minute. Like we want to start getting more of this incorporated into our businesses too. Our entire conference this year was all about trying to be more inclusive in that adult community as well. You kind of led the way there, Sam. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad I could be a part of that or a small part at least. Now I am curious when you do sessions, how do you find the balance between challenging them and keeping them 
them in the bubble? I'll go. So we have playrooms in our therapy, which is our therapy rooms or whatever. And the easiest way to say it is, well, we're locked in there. <laughs> but um, we actually have a key. So we actually do it so that if we have a runner, that we don't have to worry about them leaving the room. A lot of times the parents are in the room with us, but we also have cameras that are recording the whole thing. So people can watch their child while we're in there as well. Ours is very much a playing the way that they like to play or engaging the way that they like to engage, whether that is sitting there and talking about SpongeBob the whole time that we're there and really being fascinated with SpongeBob as much as they are and building that relationship through that mutual motivation. Or if that means that I am literally like running matchbox cars up and down the the walls in the room, just doing it the way that they're doing it, like really getting into the things that they're motivated by. And then I take that motivation and the moment that I get any kind of engagement from them, physical touch, eye contact, words, whatever, then I can use that as a kind of bridging the gap to challenge them more in a fun way, staying like within the motivation. When we look at challenging, it's like we're challenging them to do something that we already know that they are probably going to be excited about at first and kind of just building onto that all the way to the point that we're challenging them to be a little more flexible within their own activity and then maybe even adding in our own activity. When we get to that part, we've come a long way. Let's just say that. So we've spent many, many hours in the playroom hanging out and becoming really good friends before we're pushing our agenda so much because typically when we do that we just get a wall <laughs> and so that doesn't always work for us but I think that when we're saying challenging here for us it's really like little challenges built off of something that they're already motivated by all the way up to the point of like you care about me and we're friends and now you're showing interest in my topic and my life and then really encouraging that and then of course the biggest thing for us is just kind of cheerleading them all the way through it so lots of cheers lots of celebration lots of excitement every time that we get anything that's outside of that comfort bubble as we like to say so i guess what you're saying is so when i interviewed jack you told me he felt like a big kid so you're the big kid at the work too yep yes big kids we play all day it's awesome <laughs> i would agree with that that friendship building and that trust rapport piece once that's established like this guy can be the limit it's slow tedious rapport trust friendship and once that piece is in then you will begin to see the emergence of i am equal to you. I am in the same space as you. I want to share this experience with you. I might do it this way. And what do you think of that? And you just over and over those results, it comes down to providing the safest place possible for somebody to be their most authentic self. Do you trust me enough to engage with me so we can meet this goal, whatever it is of yours that's important to you? So I always tell my direct therapist when they're working with someone like eight years and under, if they don't feel silly, they're doing it wrong. So they're not having fun and being silly and on the floor and playing and putting Play-Doh on their fingers and acting like characters or, you know, all that fun stuff. If they're not doing those things, then they're doing it wrong and we need to fix that. And then for our like middle-aged type kids, so that nine years to like maybe 13, 14 years old, man, that's the preteen years and those are hard. Trying to find different, you know, things that they're interested in, music and iPhones and iPads and computers and I had one kid who was very interested in how things went together. 
So he would like to take the vacuum apart and see how that all fit together. Then we would go outside to the AC unit and he would like to look at the fan and how that was all connected together. And then we would go inside and look at how that was being put together on like Google. So we would look at all of the layers of different things, nuts, bolts, all that fun stuff that was being put together. So then we would use that to work on some math or some science or like spelling because he would have to learn how to spell like compressor. So like, you know, both Leah and Lori were saying, motivation is huge to get people to listen to what you have to say and give up some of their fun time and their own space to hear what you have to say and what you're asking them to do and, and to learn and grow from there. Lori probably didn't find being a preteen hard because she probably had one. So I don't know if she probably had an issue with that or not. But anyway, in all seriousness, I do understand your point, but that's what I kind of miss. And I kind of wish schools would do that. Use our interests to teach these skills with the fan Installing compressor? That's a genius maneuver. Yes, absolutely. And we ended up talking to his parents and told them that there's a lot of aerospace camps and a lot of STEM space or STEM camps that are over the summer that he could get involved and learn some social skills by being with kids who also have similar interests and then also foster that to maybe get into more of that STEM research. So when he gets older and then goes and sees Leah, he can then maybe look at college at IU in working on like aero engineering. It's definitely building stones. 100%. And you were talking about being a big kid. I don't know how you guys do it, like being big kids every day, because I could do it for most bikes. I enjoy the job, but maybe someone's like, look, man, you know, I love and respect you, but I've had a really bad day. I lost my father, you know, yada, yada, yada. I, I just can't today. It's just going to be really hard to do today. But then there comes that authenticity with you know, saying, look, I feel bad bad, but maybe I can do it. Maybe I need this just as much as you do. You're absolutely right. And actually we had a situation in a clinic where we had someone who did have, you know, somebody and their family passed away. And we had a kid who was working on emotions and recognizing emotions and being able to work with someone or that is displaying emotions um, because, you know, unfortunately he was struggling with being able to accept that anybody else had emotions but him. We actually put that therapist with him. So then that way they could have those discussions and he can start to learn how to show empathy and start working with communicating and what would be appropriate to talk about in those situations and what wouldn't. So sometimes there's like some negotiation too with staff if they feel comfortable with it and they can roll with it. We might utilize some of those things, you know, to help our kids because those are real life situations. They may get to a job and a coworker passed away and they need to understand empathy goes a long way with making friends. Was he an adult or a kid or just, I'm just curious myself. 14. Let's make this 14 year old feel a little better because at 20 years old, I would have the same struggle because I would just be uncomfortable. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what to do here. Mm -hmm. We as neurotypical people also sometimes have that struggle. Like, what do you say? How do you say it? What can I do to make this person feel better, but not make them feel worse about the situation that happened. So Sam, I think that's a great point that everyone kind of goes into that and has that feeling, you know, but putting them in those situations to where they've been there and they've done that helps them for when they get to real life situations when they get older. Yeah. And it's hard because the problem is with the words and the empathy, we can't do much. You no, know, we can't. Oh, I'm sorry for your loss. Some of you are, but we want to take the action. We want to bring them back from the dead, but it's not possible. You've heard actions speak louder than words. And there's a lot of cases where I don't believe in that. But in that particular case, that's one of the rare cases I do. I think it's really important that we prepare for those real life situations. Our neurodivergent thinkers are not so different than those of us that are 
average thinkers, you do experience grief. It just may present differently. You experience joy. It may present differently. My grandpa dies and your grandpa dies. We both feel something. And sometimes it's very hard to communicate that and working through those with your multiple tools and that collaboration again of, okay, someone might say, I'm seeing an uptick of behavior. Okay. Well, there's a reason, generally a reason, a change of environment, something, a growth spurt, whatever, there's a reason. And so that ability to recognize in that person and see that it's an expression of grief or loss. It's expression of a normal quote unquote range of emotions, empathy, understanding. How do you express to your friend? Like, this isn't my gig, but dude, I care about you. It feels awkward. I don't know how to share this with you, but I do care. Sometimes that's all we need. And to be able to share that in whatever way you communicate, we all have that need. Yeah. And Sam, to go back to what we were talking about, we teach what's called the social fake. So sometimes when you get a present from a grandparent or a parent, and you don't really love it, but you want to be respectful, right? That they got you something. So we teach a social fake. So sometimes you don't really have the right words and say you just kind of fake it till you make it, right? I still got to work on that and learn that too. I think some of that times it's not came out the right way, but I think it's a lot better compared to me at 10 years old. Definitely a, an improvement to reflect on, but not something I ain't going to dwell on. What is your personal definition of ABA therapy? I can go if you'd like me to. I look at it as outpatient behavioral health because we're not really hospital, but we are still considered medical. At least that's what our billing codes are with insurance. So we look at outpatients. So it's, um, you know, they come to us like they would like a normal doctor's office, not in a hospital. And then we work on behaviors. Some of those are behaviors we want to see more of. So like communication and social skills and growth with maybe some milestones, walking, talking, fine motor, gross motor. And then some of them are the maladaptive behaviors we're looking to fix or change or reduce and you know things are going to get kids kicked out of school or out of like a residential placement i've worked with the department of child services with kids who actually don't have an autism diagnosis and we've had to work on some behaviors that they've had more displayed in a foster family because of the trauma that they've received before someone else goes shouldn't you change the name then maybe instead of unlocking the spectrum unlocking the key or something to show that it's inclusive yeah absolutely i like it we did just change our logo represent multiple colors to kind of like work on the varying vast array of the spectrum because it is very large, but that's a good idea. I will definitely send that up. We really don't have any true ABA practitioners here, so I don't know that I can speak to it fluently. We do have, obviously, clinics or outpatient settings that provide that, but it, it's not something just by our credentialing and the clinicians that we have here that we do. We focus more on behavior supports, skills supports, and rec therapy supports, traditional kind of talk therapy supports in a different way. I think probably the youngest kiddo we have in our clinic right now is six maybe five. And I know that particular client is also working with an ABA source. And so we're kind of seeing the family for a different function. Same here. We do have some families that we work with with clients that receive ABA and also come to our services. So we bill under both speech and occupational as well as counseling. And then we do diagnostic testing at our clinic too for autisms. We have a lot of friends and people that we refer back and forth to that are ABA providers, but it's not what we do. Okay, let's go into this 
actually, because I know you can answer this one. It's about something on your website that I love, person first language. So can you explain person first language and tell us why it is important to use it? We are not our diagnoses. We are not our labels. We are not the, those things. I am first Leah. You are first Sam, Leslie, Lori. What are my goals? What is it I want to achieve? What does my life look like? That's kind of the simplest breakdown, right? It has to be person first. Thanks for putting me on the spot. If we begin to think about diagnoses versus and treatments versus, then we lose the person. Was the person that's important in all of it? The name comes first, though. There's a serious side, too, because my name's not autism. Exactly. Yes. We always try to tell them that who they are and what they currently do comes before any treatment plan or package. What they like to do, their things, their common interests, some of the stims that they may present, we weren't going to change those things. Those are not things we're looking to change. We're just trying to look to build to grow skills. We're trying to look to reduce some behaviors that may either hurt themselves or other people and be able to maintain in the environments that they're going to thrive in or environments that are going to help them be more independent. And a lot of times we do parent training where grandparents come in and Sam, like you said, there's some people who just can't get past autism and what that means and what it looks like and they struggle with it and so we will help family members who maybe are looking to be caregivers or help caregive and give families breaks we will train them as well and we talk about people first language because it's important because at the end of the day there's still a kid or an adult who has needs and has wants and goals and we need to recognize that but even though i'm like saying well they should understand i get it like i do because my mother was scared my mother was like oh my god he has autism i don't know if he'll be successful she went to bed for two days and for the listeners see 105 meet my mother for more information but she just did not feel good and Lori can you relate because I know you have a son on the spectrum you I don't know if you went to bed but did you feel like that his father did kind of handled things differently he was a really really fell into depression with it he would have pretty much been like I would have rather had anything else going on but this and I think it was more of an innocent ignorance though it's just because we didn't know enough for me I we went through a whole realm of getting Griffin diagnosed anyway. So I feel like just being his mom, I kind of was like, I know him so well. There was nothing about him that was scary to me or anything like that. It was more about like, how was the world going to perceive him? And I had fears for him in that way. But I didn't have like the withdrawal part for me because I felt like I had to be his advocate from day one. Well, Todd, let's get into that. So because I know this from reading your bio, you stated that the doctors at first were like, he doesn't, ma'am. He's perfectly healthy baby boy. Yeah. When did you decide that you're going to diagnose your son since he did not fit the autism profile for the doctors? Okay, so kind of the way that Griffin's went down was that Griffin was developing typically until 18 months. Shortly after his 18-month checkup, he stopped talking, stopped looking at us, kind of seemed like he was deaf or underwater. So it was a complete what some would call regression. We now know that it, it wasn't that he regressed per se. It's just kind of he went into this diagnosis pretty much of what was happening. And then it was another four and a half years before we got any words or anything back. So it was a long time. But during that time frame, way back in the day, because Griffin is 18 now, when they would do autism diagnostic kind of checklist at the time, because it used to be a checklist more than an evaluation, 
there was like so many questions you had to answer, but there was like a 10 point checklist. And if you hit seven or more, that meant that you were kind of hitting this classic autism kind of thing. And if it was less than that, it was what they called PDD NOS or pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, which for those of us, considering I'm now both medical community and parent community, I will say still means the same thing. It just is a really great term for not knowing what the heck to say, but it falls in that spectrum. <laughs> That's where Griffin fell. He hit six out of 10 on the checklist. And the one that just kept blowing their mind was at two and a half years, at, at 22 months, Griffin was following two and three step commands. And he would do them without looking at you, while humming, while flapping, while tiptoe walking. But he would still, you could say like, hey, Griff, go get your backpack and your shoes and bring him to mom so we can put him on and he would go do it. And then you could say so many different things and he would do it. And he was also very loving. He loved to be held. He loved to cuddle. We never had any kind of like true tantruming outside of what a typical two-year-old would do. So there was a lot of things that he was doing that just was like, that was not falling into their like definition of autism at the time. It wasn't until the way that we got his diagnosis just so happened to be that we were with a developmental pediatrician. We were in her office at the time, just doing one of those every six month checkup kind of things. And he did something. And then I asked a question about something and she said, well, that's just part of the autism. Da, 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 da. And I was just like, I froze because I'm like, okay, for like almost two years now, we've been saying it's not autism or it's PDD, NOS, where but now she goes, well, now we just kind of know more, like all the time we're learning more. And, and this is why it's such a social observation, learning, all that kind of part of it is the fact that it's like the more we get to know somebody, the more that symptomatology may come out and how important it is that the person who is working with that individual understands what that definition, what all those symptoms are. By that point, I was already come to terms with a year before that. So I was just at the point of like, can we just get it on paper so that if insurance needs it, that we would have it. Yeah. So it was definitely a kind of a, a weird way to come around to getting his diagnosis. And then about a year after that is when the ADOS came out, which is the Autism Diagnostic Observation schedule, which is what is used today. It's actually, we're on the second edition. And that's what two of the professionals in my office are both trained to give. Now there's better tools than there were back when Griffin was little though. Do you think a self-diagnosis though, like in public was hard to deal with since a doctor did not diagnose it with autism because society would have been more understanding if a doctor would have said, yep, he's on the autism spectrum. It definitely was for school because quite often you needed the diagnosis to get the right placement. And with Griffin, he went into what was considered a developmental delay program because they didn't know where to stick him at first when he was three. So he was in a classroom where there was like kids who had physical handicap, kids who were deaf, a child who was blind. His teacher about half the way into the year said, I love this kid. He's phenomenal, but he's the easiest kid I have in this classroom. And so therefore he gets the least amount of one-on-one. -on -one. He gets the least amount of attention because we can say, Griff, go grab your stuff and go sit at the table and he's going to do it. And he'll sit there until you tell him he can get up. He is not squeaky wheel gets the grease or whatever it is. He was not squeaking at all. So therefore he was not getting hardly anything that first year at school. And she was very honest about that. She was like, I don't think he's in the right spot. By that point in time, we were almost at the point of getting his diagnosis. And she was already putting in like saying, we're in agreement. I mean, I totally think he's on the spectrum. I'm sure that's how it's going to come out. Eventually we think for next year, he needs to be moved to the autism program and which was a much better fit for him. Maybe if he had had that early on, it was only a year, he was only three, but it did 
it did kind of help us navigate once we had that, what we were looking for as far as treatment options. He did a more one-on-one time, right? He moved to the next classroom. Oh yeah. It was like night and day. <laughs> yeah. He just had to move next door. Well, the kid has moved so many schools. He's a senior this year, but literally like just because the program has grown each year and that means it moves to different schools. And we live in a pretty decent sized town that he has gone to seven different schools within our school district as his program moves but all the kids move with him I don't really like the terms high functioning and low functioning we don't use those very often but for those who think of it that way it's like Griffin's in the high functioning program so wherever the high functioning program moves is where he would go to the next year well let's go into functioning what do you like to use instead of high functioning or the functioning levels I mean I don't particularly have a word I like to just tell people like where they fall on the spectrum or that it's it's individualized to them and we're going to meet whatever their need is or we often say we're going to treat the symptom and we're going to look at the individual versus saying like oh it's based on this diagnosis which means we do this because with autism you don't have straight protocols for anything like that and so it's really hard right now because said I work with some non-speaking adults who if someone was to just look at them from the outside looking in would consider them low functioning. One of them two years ago was still being taught at a second grade level and next week he will be taking the ACT as a non-speaking individual. So this just tells you that what his body was doing doesn't match what his brain can do. So I don't like to say low functioning because he's not. He's a very smart, brilliant guy. And so I don't have a new word though, Sam. So if you think of any, let me know. I've heard of lower supports and higher support needs. There you go. That's a good one. I don't know about you, Lori, but sometimes I feel like we have to use that language with other, with an interdisciplinary team. So like when we're talking to schools that that's common language with them. So sometimes we have to put them kind of in that box just because to translate what we see and how we see it, we have to like use words that everyone kind of is familiar with. So like low, moderate, and high functioning are words that a lot of people know in like the school department. So we have to kind of use those words to describe people when we go into team talks with other disciplines. So we have the same thing. And they, they'll also use like levels. They'll say level one, level two, level three in education. And that's based on exactly what you just said, Sam, the, the amount of support is needed based on the higher the level number goes. Yeah. And he, truth be told, my view on this topic is the harsh truth of reality is we need a term. I think that they need to know like, okay, he thinks he's a three-year-old. Or he thinks like a 10-year-old. At least the important people like doctors, teachers, mm -hmm. then you know like, okay, because they're going to be with him for all day. But maybe mm -hmm. the term functioning is too harsh. It could be. And especially since in like from the medical standpoint with the new DSM-5 update, they took away all of our other defining, like the higher end spectrum. So those Asperger's is no longer really in diagnosis anymore. It's all under the autism umbrella. And then you're labeled with like the one, two, and three medically too. I think people kind of resort to that because there's really no other way to define it because everybody is now has the diagnosis autism versus like I have a daughter who we actually never got diagnosed but she would be Asperger's 100% but she's now currently in college and she is a junior in college and she writes and is the editor for her college newspaper and she's going to work on her master's program she just you know there are some things that she certainly struggled with i think function is like degrading them it's like okay yeah maybe they do but that doesn't mean they can like i said earlier run the five thousand dollar company like a 30 year old man interdisciplinary teams and again some of those legal documents some of those filings some of those insurance documents all want that measurement and it's very frustrating to navigate what that is. Kind of giving you a write on to what you ladies have been saying. Like, I don't really have more to contribute, but like a pain in the rear. I actually have a 
question for you, Sam. What would you consider yourself? Well, high functioning, or that's what I've been diagnosed with. And I would say that to a T. And a lot of people have said, and I've heard this before, you wouldn't know that I had Asperger's syndrome unless you live with me because mm-hmm. there'd be some, all right, he can't understand how to cook an egg because not because he doesn't want to cook an egg, because he just mentally cannot process. Mm-hmm. All right, the cooking steps on, okay, now you go here, now you go here. All right, mm-hmm. you got to go everything. Like, it needs to be preheat the oven at 350 degrees. It needs to be turn the knob at 350. I just didn't know if maybe you had a term that you used to describe yourself, since in obviously our, I would assume too, like you said, high functioning would be part of your diagnosis or label, yeah. right? And while I'm not like, whatever on, I understand why it could be doubtful. And it's, it's interesting to learn others' views. Now, speaking of unlocking the spectrum, can you tell me the steps to enroll a child in unlocking the spectrum in case someone wants to come? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. So what we like to do is meet with the family first. So we'll sit down and have a a meeting with them that can be over the phone, that can be, you know, via Zoom, it can be in person because everybody's busy these days. And we talk about some things that the parents notice in their children. Sometimes they already have a diagnosis. Sometimes they don't have a diagnosis yet and they're waiting for that appointment. And we're kind of working on getting everybody because again, you heard the wait list are everywhere. So we would have that conversation. We would look to see if we think that our clinic would be a good fit. Sometimes it is, sometimes it is not. And we want to then refer them out to other people who we feel like would be a better fit for them from a service provider standpoint. And then If everything goes well and we feel like we're going to be a great fit, then we would set up an initial assessment. That initial assessment then goes through your insurance and we look then to a longer day in the clinic with the client or the child and the family. And we have some things for the family to fill out. And then we have the kid come in and we, you know, do some assessments with them to kind of see where their milestones are, their skill sets are, maybe some maladaptive behaviors or some problem behaviors that we take note of. And then we write up a really long report to send to insurance with our recommendation on what maybe hours of treatment that they need the severity level of the treatment that they need and where we think that they're at. Why do we need to determine they're a good fit? Because doesn't it, does it really matter where they go? And I'm not saying that it sucks that you have to, I can understand why at the same time, but you know, if they're a good fit, it's safe for you to do it. But why do we need to determine if it's a good fit? Because don't you and Stonebelt do the same thing? Similar things, yes. With us, a lot of our board certified behavior analyst. So we are the people that oversee the direct therapist and we are the ones who make the plans and the, the behavior plans and the treatment plans. Everybody kind of has their own thing that they're like specialized in. So some people might be really specialized in food. So like getting kids, you know, who have autism sometimes have selective eating. So there are BCBAs who actually do a lot of research in that, go to a lot of conferences for that specifically. And if our clinic that they're going to does have that and that's a parent's number one goal to get them to start eating more and maybe eating more nutritious then I'm probably going to tell them our clinic just doesn't have the resources we can do that we can get there it may take a little longer but if you were to go to this clinic where they have a person who's really good at it you may get results back I would agree similar processes similar audience family supports but little different right? So our traditional therapists here are licensed clinical social workers, uh, marriage and family therapy, LMFTs, uh, licensed mental health counselors. And then on the other side of that, our skills clinicians and our behavior clinicians have some sort of master's or bachelor's in a human services or human behavior type field. Again, 
some of us have our specialty or the love of our heart or the thing that we explored most. And so if I don't have a good fit here, yeah, much like Leslie said, I will say we can get there. We have the tools, we have the skill, but it's going to take longer because this isn't our specialty. Like we don't do ABA therapy. That's not something that I could do here. And I might have a therapist that maybe came from an ABA environment, might have her BCBA, looking to make a change, doing something different, switching things up. So she has those skills, but that's not traditional role, right? So we wouldn't say we offer ABA. The spectrum is really large. So are our services really large to try to meet those needs as well. So Lori, this is for you. So I know you guys do evaluations. So what are the actions that the person does during an observation that convinces the evaluator that they have autism? So the ADOS is actually like, it's a very standardized test. What's so important with it is there's a lot of individuals who meet the qualifications as far as a licensure level to give the test, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be what they call calibrated. And this is what's really, really important. I like to share with other professionals in this field is that it states right there in the front of the testing that for the test to be calibrated, and what that means is that for the accuracy of the test to be closer to 100% accurate would mean that that individual giving the test is working with this age group. They're working with this diagnosis on almost a daily basis. So that's all that our clinic does. <laughs> we get questions a lot of time where people will say like, hey, do you guys test adults on the spectrum? Can we? Yes. Should we? No. Because that's not the population that we're working with. In all honesty, we treat more pediatrics. So we Probably if you were 22 or older, we would not recommend us being the place to do your testing because our accuracy rates could be affected. So I just want to put that out there. So the test itself is actually taking an individual who has gone through the training, who specializes in that field, and they're doing a standardized test. So they base it on the child's verbal skills at the time and their age. So like, let's say we have someone coming in and we don't do the test if they're under 31 months. There is a toddler module that can be done, but we don't recommend it because the toddler module can just say at risk or not at risk. And we really just don't think that caregivers should pay for that. <laughs> if they just wait till 31 months, they can actually get their diagnosis if that's truly what's going on. And you can already receive services under 31 months anyway without having to have a diagnosis. But during that testing, it's actually going to have the individual work with a practitioner and do different social kind of activities. So it might be something like one of them is tell me how you brush your teeth, right? And they'll lay down like a play toothbrush. They'll lay down a cup of water. They'll say, pretend this is a sink. And they'll literally be like, just walk me through the steps of brushing your teeth. What a lot of people are thinking is like, okay, their practitioner is looking to see if they know how to brush their teeth or not. And that's not at all what they're looking for. They're really looking for, do they use facial experience? expressions? How descriptive are they in what they're saying? Do they turn to make sure that like you're paying attention to them whenever they're doing it? Uh, what is their body language like? Do they use any kind of references to something else? What are the motions that they're doing with their body? How quickly are they getting through it? So there's a lot of stuff that's literally based on their observation of how that person is engaging in that activity. And they will go through a whole series of activities. And then that's scored against thousands of other individuals at that age who are both diagnosed with autism and not diagnosed with autism to kind of see if enough of what they did comes out in that score to put them on the spectrum or not on the spectrum. What is the score for them to go on the spectrum? It depends on the module that you gave. So four different modules. So there's like a module one, two, three, and four, and that's based on like their language abilities and age at the time. So I'm not sure the exact numbers for each of them. I don't give the test. Stephanie and Tori both give the test, which you've met Sam. And so it may be that like an eight is 
the cutoff score for maybe like our module two. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's going to be based on whatever the cutoff score is. And so each thing that they measure, that it gets a score of like a zero, a one, a two, or a three. And then they add that up at the end and it'll say like, okay, if this individual had a score of eight or more, that would put them in that cutoff for that classification. Gotcha. That makes more sense. So it just depends on what the circumstances are and what the age is because of how they act different than someone else. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's compared against thousands of other kids when the study was originally done. So, and then they update it every so often and put out a new version to include more. Like the module one, you can actually give the module one, depending on how much the child wants to participate or not participate. You can give it in like as easy as 30, 45 minutes, but a module three, you're looking at a good two and a half hours and you may also have to do a parent interview with it two or three times before you test or after you test to get a true score. Because at that level, it's more conversational based. So you're asking questions about like, how do you feel about dating? How do you feel about your friends? So that, and getting a lot of stuff out of like conversation. Leslie, this is for you. So I know your company started writing a blog a while back ago. When did the company decide to start writing a blog? So I am not sure. I know we did it a while ago, but I can't remember exactly when the date was. I think we started writing that blog because I feel like information for parents, information for people who just receive a diagnosis, for their child is so hard to find. And I think everyone, once they get a diagnosis for their child, then they scour the internet for all the answers. <laughs> so I think one of our goals was to just give someone a place to look for maybe where to start to know that maybe staying in their bed for two days is appropriate, normal. There are more people who do that, like you said that your mom did. Maybe sometimes there's parents who want a second opinion and want to know where to get that at. I think that was our main purpose of starting the blog was just to be able to provide families with more information. I think you just referenced how to start the process of getting into a clinic. We did a blog about that. I'm, I'm sure that's where that kind of came from because there's a lot of parents who don't know where to start and they don't know what to expect. We try to give them what it looks like for us so that way most clinics are very similar in that process. Even if you don't decide to go with us, here's at least some foundational information that can help you along your way. Gotcha. And you're still doing them today, right? Yep. If you had to pick, which one was your favorite that you've either read or written? I would probably have to say that we did one a while ago on reinforcement and how to play with your kid and how to engage with your kid and what that looks like. A lot of times, when we do parent training, I think they forget that if you give them more attention when they don't do appropriate things, they're probably going to do appropriate things more often to get your attention. So we try to talk about flipping that script and giving your kid a lot of attention from when they're doing the right things and just kind of walks them through some of that. So I think that was probably one of my favorites because that's a misconception I feel like in a lot of the world with just discipline and parenting in general. Right. I did a full episode on see 218 data discipline for more information, <laughs> but I definitely shared my uh, discipline views on what I think is the best consequence for the actions and what is reasonable to me and what was not reasonable to me. Feel free yeah, to check that and out. I would love to actually, I'm going to write that down and go look at it because a lot of times too, you know, Sam, you're absolutely correct. The punishment has to fit the crime. If somebody spilled milk, taking their iPad away for seven days is not appropriate. <laughs> 
So yeah, I think there's I have my own opinion on that. I, what I don't believe in, I'll just spit it out, is the spanking or the timeout because it's not realistic. But that's just a little I, preview, I, love- I guess, for the listeners and. I but, am excited to hear it now. Oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> After I, I read it, can I can I email you and, and let yeah, you know? Sure. Perfect. So folks, we're gonna take a break right here from our someone new called CFC Properties. So let's hear them out. Autism Rocks and Rolls is proud to announce our newest sponsor, CFC Properties. Located in downtown Bloomington, Indiana, CFC Properties has an extensive portfolio of commercial, industrial, residential, and hospitality real estate composed of award-winning properties. CFC Properties is committed to preserving the past and creating a better future by engaging and enriching the community through growth, philanthropy, equality, and education. The company strives to be a positive role model to its employees and the customers they serve. A big thank you to CFC for their continued support of Autism Rocks and Rolls. All right, folks, and we're back. And yes, you'll definitely buy some beautiful property if you really check them out. Because let me just tell you, man, Leah, this is for you. So I've heard about these advocacy luncheon series. Can you tell me about these? Oh, goodness. A little advocacy series is ran by a unit within our building. And as the director, I'm just now getting kind of, as the new director, just kind of getting um, affiliated. But we do these advocacy lunches. It's part of our outreach and part of that collaboration that we talked about, going to other groups, going to other places to say, hey, this might be how we're thinking about this. Talking about timeouts and breaks and things. This might be what your skilled person can offer at this place of employment. Or if you're just hanging out out, this might be something that you see. And so they do that with a lot of different organizations in town, from schools to businesses to other groups. And I haven't gotten to be a busy part of that just yet, as my seat's very new here, moving from therapy. I've, I've only been in this seat for about six months. So, and the interim directorship actually like six weeks. So I've got a lot to learn, but I do know about them. I see them. I work with the unit that's upstairs that puts them on and they tend to have a great lot of fun. And we hear back how helpful that share is just to make people think about things in a little different way that might not be a great answer sam but i'm doing my best (laughs) well i bet you can answer this can people attend these webinars yes absolutely i'm not sure exactly where to find the link but i can get you that information email it to you because another person administers those like loads them so i can get with her and find out where to send those Okay. Yeah, that'd be perfect. For Lori, you offer types of training. Tell me the types of training you offer. So we are a full training center as well. So we do, one of our biggest programs is called the Journey Program, which Journey is obviously one of our big words. And we, like we think, like love it. So it's nine hours of training for caregivers. It's pretty much everything from understanding what the diagnosis is to how to play with your kid, to how to advocate for them in the school system, to how to actually explain to the rest of your family and relatives and stuff like kind of like what approaches you're using with your child and why you're doing things the way that you're choosing to do them and how to empower yourself as a caregiver to be an advocate kind of thing so it's really about kind of helping caregivers along the way used to be we taught it in person over this past six months we've been kind of doing all the filming and so hopefully it's going to become an online program so people don't have to be local to take it which is really cool and then we have a huge educator program so i spend a lot of time working with schools and so we have both like an intro to 
understanding autism for educators. This is really, really great for like your general ed teachers who are you know, maybe just every so often they have a special ed student or someone from like their autism program coming to their classroom for something. Or for, as we were saying earlier, like the more higher functioning uh, kids who are in their classroom who are coming with an IEP or a diagnosis and how to, how to work with them in their classroom all the way up to like a five hour program where we're actually working with special education teachers or autism teachers or different staff within the school system, school counselors, school therapists, principals, you name it. And that is looking at pretty much understanding autism, understanding the difference between an autism and a behavioral diagnosis, because sometimes people get lumped into the same thing. Understanding protocols that you can use inside of your classroom to make it easier on you as a teacher. So versus saying like, here's all the accommodations you have to make. We also go in and say like, okay, you're already doing those things, but how can we make it so that you're actually building a relationship with your student? As we teach them all about motivation and ways to kind of desensitize the environment, because sometimes we, especially with our pre-K through fifth grade teachers, sometimes it can look like that you walked into, I don't know, a circus. And so we look at ways where they can still love their classroom, decorate their classroom, but also make it visually stimulating for children who are on the spectrum. And then we do business training. So we actually train like with restaurants. We help train their servers on like what to do when you have someone who comes in who maybe has a special needs child. We talk about hiring individuals on the spectrum and what that would look like. So our training programs are really just to fit our community and what their need is at the time. But those are kind of some of the biggest ones that we do. I'm trying to say this and this is the best way I can. I wish you could visit my school for the right reasons because you would be like impressed on how we do stuff because I'm just biased because I went there clearly, but my school is the best with the special education department. I've heard actually kids have moved there because their special education department is phenomenal. Oh, I love that. Maybe I can come visit. Come I visit love that. You have to talk to and arrange that maybe to the principal, but the principal is pretty cool and he'd probably be open for it knowing him. I would love that. I love learning and being able to share the information with other other people. So that'd be incredible. That will be taught to my mother so you can make it happen. I'll stay out okay. of it, but if you're interested, <laughs> I don't know, we can probably set something up. For sure, for sure. Thank you. So now I want to talk to Lee again. So I've saw on your website about these couple posts that your clients wrote called The Lost Little Monkey and I Am You. Yes, yes. Talk to me about that, please. Those I know about. So The Lost Little Monkey was illustrated actually by a client of ours, authored and illustrated. Incredible uh, storyline. She is very involved in the community. We have that book in our shop. We have it in a lot of the offices here as well. So that was her creation. Well, she's the author. It's on the name. It's on the book anyway. Okay. <laughs> and I Am You is near and dear to my heart. So I Am You takes a series of performers, creators from a lot of facets of, of many, many of our programs from day program to group living to employment program to whoever wants to be a part of it. And they narrow down and assist that creativity to come out in its best format. So it might be a play. It might be a skit. It might be a song. It might be drumming. It might be poem. It might be some sort of dance. And then they put on this show at the Buskirk Chumley is where it's been held in the past, showcasing those talents, those arts, and many 
many of the artists will use some of their struggles to illustrate like what is going on to prove I am you. I have the same same set of emotion. I have the same set of processes. And so it's super cool. We get a lot of collaboration from units at IU to help with the music portions, to help with the acting portions. Um, a lot of our staff are really involved in you know, how can we help? What can we do to be supportive? It's actually one of my favorites that we do. It's one of my favorites because it really is just a showcase of I'm you too, right? And it's lovely. So I am you is one of my very favorites. I got a suggestion for you. Yep. Have you ever worked with um, the local Kiwanis? I don't know for that group if they have or not. I can absolutely write it down well, and see. The reason why I say that is their committee is full of people with special needs. I'll tell you uh -huh. that much. And have you okay. heard of the All Abilities Choir? Gotta give yes. them a shout out. Abilities Choir perform. And I actually got a chance to work for a year or two with one of the singers in the choir and phenomenal person. And I miss working with that guy. But yeah, the All Abilities Choir still have a little lady that comes in here and tells me about when they have shows and exciting times, but you know, singing at the Memorial Union, singing at Assembly Hall, different golfing events, things like that. They are a busy group. Oh, they are a busy group, but the Kiwanis. They do a lot of like balloon fest. There's an idol for those with special needs. And I just thought you might be, that'd be good collaborative work for you. I appreciate that, Sam. I'll reach out to see what we may or may not be doing together. Um, since we're on top of events, what events does your company do for autism acceptance? Unfortunately, with insurance, there isn't a whole lot of community things that we can take our kids out to. So what we do is we have an events coordinator that works at our company that will call and ask if we can have like a certain time frame at a movie theater to where we can have people in the community, not just our clients, but people in the community come and they can come in and watch the movie that's paid for and covered by our company. We've done various walks. We've had our centers actually open and invited the public to come into the center and do a sensory friendly Halloween, you know, decorated doors in different clinic rooms and had prizes and stuff and they could come in. Quite a few things in the community at every single one of our centers because we have four in Indiana and then we have three in Texas. So every center has done that. Being a charity, we we do a lot of events <laughs> like that. We've done the Halloween thing in our clinic. We did that prior to COVID, obviously. All during the last few years, our clinic has grown so much that all the extra space that we have is now filled with staff or being used as clinic space. So we're hoping in the next two years to build a new building, which will be super nice. We hold the autism conference for Eastern Oklahoma, which is really cool to bring people out because it's open to everybody. We've done runs. We've done walks. We run a summer camp program that allows individuals on the spectrum. A lot of our clients, but also we do some older kids where we bring in different ages to come in and get to experience summer camp. And then we support a few kind of like really, really cool initiatives that are with the neurodivergent community. One of those is something called Stars on Stage, which is bringing arts to special needs individuals. And so it's really cool. They've been around for two years now here in Broken Arrow, and that's where they have mentors and they perform a musical. It's huge in the community or whatever. Last year, they did Seussical, which was phenomenal. This year they did The Lion King and it's ages like 8 to 20 something is really, really cool. There's probably 80 some kids in it and it's the most moving thing I've ever seen. Just being a part of anything that we can kind of be a part of. We work with a lot of different places, like whether it's the zoo, like helping them host special needs nights. So wherever we can make our community more inclusive, that's just part of our mission. Off the top of my head, I cannot think of individual events 
again, new to this particular seat, we participate in a ton and we sponsor a ton because a lot of our work is individual with a client, with a, someone in supported living. Oftentimes it is facilitating getting them to those things. So things like IMU is one of our bigger events where we try to promote different abilities, right? Whether they be physical or neurodivergent or whatever they might be. So it's not so much focused. I would say the events that we do are not solely focused on autism as much as they are kind of the broader spectrum of the people that we serve. And I am curious about this now. So I want to talk about all of your mission statements. So definitely have some pretty good mission statements when I read them. But in your opinion, what makes Unlocking the Spectrums, Stone Belts, and the Griffin Autism Promise Clinic's mission statement stand out from other autism or mental health clinics? And even though we're not a competitor here, let's just be a little competitive. What, in your opinion, makes your autism clinic the best with your mission statement? Wow, you're putting us right out there, aren't you? Well, I really love the prepare, empower, and support portion of our mission statement. It is behind everything we do, every action, I think, from reception to the CEO. We are forever looking at what is that preparation step? What is that empowerment step? Where is that support? Is it on the floor of the legislature? Is it here in somebody's kitchen? Is it at a school? Is it on the playground? Where and how are we doing that? And who are we doing that for is always in our purview. And what do we, nine times out of 10, we figure out that we've earned, learned something more than what we've given. So that prepare, empower, and support just kind of is the whole crux for me personally. And if I go home every day feeling like I helped do something in those three words, then yeah, I'm doing that better than anybody else, Sam. <laughs> I think for our mission statement, I think that I really, that grabbed my heart as a parent was the fact that it includes that it's for not just the clients, but for their team, like their circle of caregivers, because caregivers include anybody who is helping, anybody who's part of that team. So it's not just a parent. It can be a grandparent, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, teacher, therapist. It doesn't matter. So I love the fact that in, in the mission statement, it says that we're offering hope to both those individuals and their caregivers. Because I know that for me, in the beginning of my journey with Griffin, it felt like what I got to hear a lot of was the concerns or the what Griffin wasn't doing or what we weren't sure about or the limitations he may have. And so we wanted to kind of like eliminate that from our thought process in our clinic and be more about the what are we doing? What skills do we have? What are the things we're going to achieve? And so really kind of change that for the caregivers when they come in versus just being like, hey, these are all the things where your kid's not meeting the milestone and be like the, oh, look how cool your kid is and all the amazing things that they're doing. You think about it, it kind of reminds me of this analogy. So sometimes in life, we all get sick. I mean, clearly we all do. But once you get better, you can go back down. If you, you know whether regardless, you can help it or not. But most of the time you get better. My point I'm trying to get here is once you start to know your stuff, you got better and you're still getting better. To really change that mindset behind the idea of like, oh, a diagnosis and a diagnosis obviously means something negative or something that's not the norm. And being like the, okay, well, here's this label or this definition. It's just a, it's just a piece of what someone is. It doesn't define who they are or what they're going to be able to do and kind of take that stigma off of that, especially for the caregivers so that they will inevitably not start treating their child like that either. <laughs> They can still be treated like their age, regardless of their condition. Absolutely. We're very, very big on presuming competence. Now, folks, we'll be right back. We're going to hear from not Leslie from Unlocking the Spectrum, but someone else from Unlocking the Spectrum. So let's get to it. 
At Unlocking the Spectrum, we are committed to making the highest quality ABA therapy accessible to all children with autism. We pride ourselves in offering fun, compassionate, and data-driven programs for individuals with autism and unparalleled support for their families. Our personalized approach means that every unique child is given just what they need to reach their maximum potential. We are so happy to support Sam in his mission of taking the stigma off of autism. You can learn more about our services and employment opportunities in both Indiana and Texas at unlockingthespectrum.com or by calling 855-INFO-UTS. That's 855-INFO-UTS. All right, folks, we're back. And yes, if you check them out, you'll definitely unlock the key to success. So now my question is again for all of you. So I know you said that we can do ABA at home. So what ABA tools can parents use at their home, if any? So many. Sam, there's so many tools that parents can use in the home setting. One of the things that insurance is now kind of mandating that ABA providers do is parent training for that reason, just because I think that was a missing piece a long time ago when we first started this field, that they were kind of focusing on the kid only and not really focusing on the environment that they went home in. Now we do a lot of parent training. Training. We have some parents who come in once a week. We have some parents who come in every other week. And we have some parents who come in once a month, you know, depending on where they're at within their training. And we specialize parent training just as much as we do with the kid to make sure that they're getting everything that they need to help advocate for their kids once we fade out. Because ABA isn't a lifelong service. It should never be looked to that. It's a service that's supposed to get in. It's supposed to help catch up some skills. It's supposed to help figure out why some behaviors are occurring, train everybody in their environment, and then get out of Dodge. There's so many tools that parents can use that nobody should really be focusing on just one. Gotcha. And I agree with that because you can't really build the board with just one nail and hammer, hammer multiple nails. That is the best analogy. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I know sometimes that your clients don't want to be there, not because they don't want to be. It's just that, you know, they're like, guys, they're having a bad day. So how do you make the therapy a place where the person with autism wants to go to, where they don't have to like, uh, here again? Are you kidding me? I deal with that a lot. Who wants to come to traditional talk therapy? Who wants to, oh, it's after school. I don't want to go talk to her. Like, right. And so we have that, like the mom, the grandma, the aunt, the, the dad, the uncle, the caregiver, like I had to drag them here today. And so it's, it's tuning into that. And it's, what is it? And I'll be honest, there are times it's their session. So maybe today we need to chill out. What's your favorite music? We're going to spend this unobligated block of time. I don't need you to do homework. I don't need you to eat dinner. And I've gotten to listen to some fun music, some symphony stuff I wouldn't probably have picked out, some like screamer rock that I would not have probably picked out for myself, but some fun stuff. Or say, again, it's your session. I'm going to play some Uno, hang out. And maybe the title turn throughout the session and maybe you see those shoulders come down and that big breath happen. Maybe not. Maybe at the end of it, they're like, um, I got through 45 minutes, right? I'm out. I'm, I'm out, right? And that's the reality of it. You have a good day. You have a bad day. They have a good day as your client. They have a bad day, right? You just got to kind of roll with that. But again, I think that goes back to some of that trust and rapport and knowing your client, man, like just knowing how to tune into them and be like, today is not the day and not taking it like on the chin. If somebody comes in and says, I ain't doing this today. I'm going to sit here and look at you because mom made me come. Okay. Let me sit here and look at me today. Mom made you come, right? <laughs> you can't force somebody to do something that they don't want to do. And the reality is we all have those days. 
But some of our kiddos, they're with guardians or with parents. If their parents get them in the car, they're going to come, right? So their parents are going to make them. It's about choice and it's about dignity and care and it's about respecting their boundaries and what they can tolerate that day. So just because mom got them here doesn't mean we're going to really dive in today. We're going to go at their pace. And hey, at least they're here. And I do praise that. I do say, you know, thanks so much. I know you didn't want to be here. So thanks so much for coming. Now, what can we do to make it just that much better that you're here? That much less stinky that you're here, right? Okay, let's talk about the hard days. Not maybe before, like they already had the bad day. Now during the therapy. Like, yeah, they come in all happy smiles, but they do the therapy and it's just rough. There's just no other yeah. way to say it. It's rough, very challenging. How do you encourage them to give positive praise? Like, you know what? This is rough, but hey, you're here and I'm so proud of what you've done. We've gotten a lot and did a lot of extra steps. Man, you did well mm -hmm. for your functioning level. How do you praise yeah. that? I think this kind of speaks a lot to the ABA clinic because we do have some kids that are there for eight hours in a day, which is a really long time for like a three and a four-year-old, right? So I think there are some proactive strategies that we use to get that involved or to get them involved. There are a lot of choices that we try to let them make. Okay, fine. You don't want to do this right now. This is what's causing the issue. You know, what is something that you want to do instead? Can we go do that for a few minutes and then let's come back and maybe do only two questions of your homework that we're asking you to do. And then let's go take another break and we'll do this. And then we can come back and maybe do two more, right? So breaking things up into smaller, more manageable steps. There are some things that we just are like, hey, you know what? We have to prepare them for because this is part of their, what they have to learn and what's on their treatment plan. So we prepare them. Hey, just so you know, we have this to do today. You can either do it first and get it out of the way, or you can do it at the very end of your day before you go home, or we can do it in the middle. So we can surround the first part of your day with a lot of fun do the really hard thing. And then the end of their day is really fun. So you choose on what you would like to do. Gotcha. So those are some things is that we one do. of the rules just out of curiosity, since you say your clients eight hours a day, mm -hmm. do you ever have clients spend the night? That's what it sounds no. like. So that's why I was talking about that outpatient, right? Nobody spends the night. And then depending on what insurances they have and what insurance is approved depends on how long they're with us. Uh, okay. And because ABA is intensive. Like it is intensive. It is designed to be all in very fast. We get out and reduce services to, you know, services sometimes like with Stonebelt because we've transitioned some clients there before that have out of school age. So they're 22-ish. So then there's no more supports obviously for them in place. So we've actually worked with Stonebelt before on transitioning students from our clinic and service and school into Stonebelt where they've been successful there. Well, let me ask you this then. Is that transition hard for them? Because I know transitions can be a pain in the behind for some of those on the spectrum. Is that transition <laughs> like, ugh? Here we go. We start off really small and we, we write out a transition plan for everybody involved and have goals for it. And then everyone kind of fulfills their role and we take little steps at a time. Maybe it's only going, you know, to stone belt for one hour, one day a week. And then we build up to that and we get it to where then they, they now then go to like five, you know, for five hours, five days a week. So it just kind of depends on the kiddo and what they can do and what they can't do and how much time they need to adapt to the new environment. Well, folks, we'll be right back. We're here our last night will be the bluebird so let's hear them once again have you ever wondered what is the most fun thing to do in Bloomington, indiana if you do not know i have the answer for you because it is time to bring your best dance moves to the bluebird in Bloomington, indiana this rock club does not only host live music but has karaoke nights as well please visit the bluebird at 216 north walnut street Bloomington, indiana 4704 if you have any questions please contact them at 812 336-398. I repeat, that is 812-336-398.
or leave them an email at their email address, dekubayak1 at gmail.com. That is spelled D-K-U-B-I-A-K-1 at gmail.com. This is the place to be if you want to have a great time. I can promise you that. All right, folks, we're back. And yes, there might be a bluebird at this place. You never know. Now, my question to all of you, and this is pretty relevant because I've heard the controversies of ABA. We don't need to go into them. I actually did a full-blown college paper on it, and I unfortunately had to bash it because it wasn't my fault. I kind of had to pick a side and go with it. I wanted to hear about the controversies and understand and focus on the both sides, and I went with, okay, this is pretty controversial, and I try to keep it neutral, but my tutor made me basically bash it, so I blame her on that, not my fault. But anyway, what is the biggest misconception of ABA? I'm going to jump in here because I know Leslie already knows like all the ins and outs of ABA because that's what she does. Quite often we get that question where I'm at, like, why don't you guys do ABA? Or what is, what is the, like, are you guys the opposite of ABA and this kind of thing? Here's what I can say. I went through ABA training as a parent when Griffin was young, and it is a very different world now than it was 16 years ago. And I think that there's quite often where we refer children out to ABA. I think it has to be if it's the right fit for people. And that's why I said there has to be so many different protocols and so many different approaches. And listening to Leslie, obviously she has a lot of the same mindset that I have. She has very much a play-based, building that motivator, making sure the relationship's there, making sure the trust is there. I think that the misconception that was out there, like for a lot of families, is that that is the only autism therapy that's out there. So a lot of times that's the first one that people go to. And then what they will do is they will look it up. And if you Google something, you know, you always either get the very best or the very worst. You don't get the middle ground of where the truth usually lies. And so if they're looking at data from individuals who are adults now who went through traditional ABA styles a long time ago, who maybe did not have a negative behavioral component, it may have felt very severe to them in that circumstance. But I now work with probably four or five different ABA places that if you walked in, nothing about their setup or anything looks like the way that institutional ABA was forever ago. So I think that people just really need to be a little more open-minded. And I always tell parents, shop around because if it doesn't feel good to the caregiver, they won't do it at home. And if they're not doing it at home as well, you're not going to see progress. I would agree with that last statement very much, no matter what the title of the therapy. If it doesn't feel like it's a fit for your person that you love, they're not going to do it. And it's not going to be learned at home. It's not going to be supported. It's going to get thrown to the side. And I think that's with any type of therapy. We don't do specific, again, ABA therapy here. We do have some of those partnerships where we age out and those sorts of things, or where we have some youngsters that we would make that recommendation to. And I don't know if that just wasn't like kind of on our board's line of vision when the board of directors, when they said us, I, I don't really know in our history, I've not seen that we had offered ABA, maybe just not our bail and and other places are doing it really well. And so those partnerships may be sufficient. It's a good question for me to look into our history as to why it's not been something. I'm sure it's something in one of those rules. <laughs> maybe. Maybe gotta go back to the maybe go back to the guidebook, right? And I'm curious with this, the name Stonebelt. I would not associate that with an autism clinic, to be honest with you. Well, Where did that I, name come from? It's a cool name, I'll be honest. I have a document and it's about our charter from 1953. It's just kind of a cool little thing but the name is already there so I'm not sure where this group of parents what they designed it for or what they were thinking when they chose it but I like to, to envision them just thinking about what kind of milestone kind of stoning at the belt like that you know we're, we're done tightening that I don't know I don't know where it came from but it is interesting it's pretty cool that's a pretty good name 
But it's just funny though, because I would never think Stone Bell Autism Clinic. So for us, you know, I, I would I think don't... that's like a rodeo or something. <laughs> Sometimes it looks like that. Um, <laughs> But I think we we handle so many, you know, we're not just autism over here. So we've got lots of the neurodivergency, not lots of mood disorder, lots of physical different abilities. And so it's more encompassing. It's a, it's a piece certainly of what we do. And it's, we're seeing it as a bigger piece, either because of early misdiagnoses or misunderstandings. So it's certainly important that we be a part of that picture. There's a lot under our umbrella. Gotcha. Now we'll wrap it up here and these are for fun. So what is your paradise meal or your favorite food and why is it your favorite? I really love really good ice cream. There's a place in Michigan called Cherry Republic in this little town and they make their ice cream and it's phenomenal. What flavor do you go? Well, lots of different cherry flavors. So I like the chocolate cherry. I was just gonna say, I don't know if coffee is a food group, but it should be uh, because I have a literal addiction and obsession with like frou-frou coffee too. Like not just just coffee with creamer I can keep within a, a mile radius of the clinic we have seven different specialty coffee shops and I literally can keep them in business so coffee is my go-to is one of them uh, not your average Joe's or was I'd yes it is and we love some not your average Joe's what's really odd is I've always liked Starbucks but I didn't like um coffee until this year actually so for the listeners, see 1113 Father and Son chat, but my dad had a knee replacement surgery. And what I did is do some time was to wake myself up because I slept in a lot during that time was I drank some coffee. Been a coffee drinker since. And it is something that me and the people on my team, we actually quite often we come with a coffee drink and then there's like the midday coffee run and we take a vote on where people are going for coffee and we, we have our own little like coffee notebook where we write everybody's orders and we even have a carrier that we got off of Amazon that'll hold six drinks. I mean there's 22 of us that work there and there's some days where we take 22 orders and send like two or three people. It's an obsession and I will own it and the amount of money I spend on coffee is ridiculous and it's okay. It's just kind of what gets me through life. So uh, I am also with I think my first love probably is coffee, but a close second would be mashed potatoes and gravy. I am very Southern from two very large Southern families, and I could eat mashed potatoes and gravy for every food or every meal and be 100% satisfied with it. But now do you like to mix it up though? Like, is it just mashed potatoes or is there baked potatoes, fries involved, or does it have to be mashed? I mean, I like all potatoes. I don't discriminate there, but I do love mashed potatoes are my favorite and I will mix up the gravies. So sometimes it's like a chicken gravy. Sometimes it's a beef gravy. Sometimes it's a, like a breakfast gravy. How about chicken and beef gravy? Have you ever tried that? Ooh, no, but I bet it'd be delightful because I love both of them. That's why I said that. The combination may look a little weird though. The combination may look weird, but who cares? It's tasty. Some weird <laughs> stuff guess. has tasted really good before. You're right. I know, it's like sushi, right? Sushi looks real weird, but everybody loves it. Now, what is your favorite movie or TV show, and why do you like it? Okay, this was the movie thing, right? I love a lot of movies, but my favorite, like, always go back to movie is Hook with Robin Williams. And I think it's just... First of all, I'm a Disney fanatic. I love all things Disney. But I think it's that whole idea of being an adult who can like live in this whole fantasy world and that things aren't ever what you think they are um, and that things can be very magical at any age. And so this just stuck with me since I was young. So just like what we do every day, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a romance novel kind of girl, and I like Notting Hill, big Julia Roberts fan. So I'm kind of old school. I don't do a whole lot of new modern movies, but from like a young, young age, late high teens, early 20s, I love Gone with the Wind. And not because of the frankly scarlet 
split. I don't give a thing because of her tenacity. And tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow is another day. No matter how poorly she does it, the one day, no matter how mean or grumpy or sweet or nice, tomorrow is another day. And so gone with the wind. What wasn't your favorite vacation that you have ever taken? And why did you enjoy that vacation very much? Last year, actually, the reason I loved this one, I went to Michigan with some friends and I climbed Sleeping Bear Dune and it was something I didn't think I could do. So it became a favorite because I was able to challenge myself and I was able to be successful. That dune is huge and steep and a lot of people roll back down it and they have fun doing it. But sticks in my mind is one of my very favorite vacations because I accomplished something super cool on that vacation. Mine will forever be Disney. We love going. We love being there. Super fun with the kids at any age. My older girls. So I have a 23-year-old. I have a 21-year-old. And I have a 16-year-old. And they would go now to this day because of Harry Potter and Universal. And then just obviously just the magic of Disney. So So that's our favorite basically. Yes. They take after their mother. Hey, I'm a, like I said, Disney fanatic. We go all the time. I have a 24-year-old, a 19-year-old, and an 18-year-old, and we love Disney. It is not my number one vacation, though, only because I had a beautiful opportunity to go on a Mediterranean cruise, and I went to Venice, Italy, Rome, Montenegro, Olympia, Greece, Santorini, Greece, and Croatia, and it was a 12-day trip. I was in awe the entire time, and I just, I feel like I always find some thing in myself when I travel to new places and that was one of those things that was just so eye-opening to me to see such beautiful places and to have the opportunity to go so it was very life-changing for me um so that's my my number one and I love being on cruise ships anyway you know I would love to go on a cruise because I've heard they're fun they're amazing but they gotta lower their prices a little bit (laughs) there are some really cool ones Sam you'll have to try like things like one called cruises only and it's usually like if you're and it's free to be a Hilton Honors member. But if you're a Hilton Honors member, you can have cruises only discount. And so like the last cruise that I went on was in 2020, right after the cruise line started back up. And I got a balcony room for five nights for like, I think we paid $320 a piece. Huh. I'll for look five into days. that. Cruisesonly.com? So, so you could, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So cruisesonly.com. Try that out. <laughs> I will. Now, my final question is, are there any good memories that you want to tell our listeners about? If you do, why do you remember that memory the most? And this is for all of you. And before you answer, I like a good memory that is very sentimental to you and will always, you know, be memorable to you. And a funny memory that made you fall on the floor laughing. It could be with your work. It could be with your family. It could be with the trips. That can be with me. I don't care. The choice is yours how you want to answer it. Okay. So you want two memories, right? Right. One sentimental One that made you fall on the floor laughing. This could be the reason why I like mashed potatoes. So my grandmother, when I was sick and my parents had to go to work, I would go to my grandmother's house. And no matter what time of day, no matter what was going on in her world when I had to go there so she could watch me, she would stop and make me mashed potatoes and gravy and hot lemonade to drink. I will always cherish those memories in that time with her. Funny memory is I bowled in college for actually IU and I was bowling in a tournament and I went up in my bowling, my very first role of my very first game bowling, I guttered. So that's awesome. Everyone's dying laughing. I did not find it as funny. We're supposed to be professionals. I was not. Okay, here's mine. My sentimental one is actually a Disney one because we took Griffin for his very first Disney trip the week that he was turning three. Until your third birthday, it's free, which is really cool. So we took him there all the way up until his third birthday. This is when Griffin was non-speaking. He definitely had very low eye contact. Just we were kind of in 
the throes of like just trying to figure out his diagnosis then. And that week that we were there, I have the most amazing pictures of him smiling and looking in the camera and taking pictures with the characters when he wouldn't let other people touch him half the time. And if you were looking at video of that trip and pictures of that trip, you wouldn't have known anything whatsoever because he was so happy and so engaged. And it just let me know like where so many people had said things like, oh my gosh, taking a child on the spectrum of Disney. It every time has been phenomenal um, for us. So that's kind of my sentimental one. My funny, laughing, embarrassing one would probably be, I was a dancer growing up, so it's not that I'm not coordinated. I am coordinated, but I was a senior in high school and I went snow skiing and I'm not coordinated on skis and I'm scared of heights. So I didn't even want to ride the thing that takes you up the mountain. So I was just doing like some of the smaller hills and stuff, but I did finally get on and I rode it. I went to the top of one of the smaller hills, came down, did fine. Then all I was trying to do was just go over to the area, like a very small little bunny hill so I could go park, as you call it, and put your skis away. And I could not stop. And I ran into a bunch of college guys to which our skis got tangled up and a ski instructor had to untangle me and one of the guys. And as a senior in high school, it was literally, I could have died right there. So <laughs> I was not coordinated that day. Not that day, but hey, we're coordinated the rest of the time. It was just, did you stop? Did you not put on the brakes because your not, feet not move or? Thought I was doing what I was supposed to where you like pivot and I just was not stopping. And I'd fallen so many times coming down the hill and I don't know why I just didn't fall. I just was like putting my hands out trying to stop. And I can still see it in my mind, even though it was so many years ago, the fact that not only did we get tangled, but typically you can at least move your body enough to like hit the button and kick your ski boot out and get the skis off. But we were so twisted that we could only do that with one out of the four skis that were attached at that point in time so yeah it was and everybody was just standing around they like formed a circle or it was a whole thing well you did pivot it just wasn't the right way and it was into someone else right right so my sentimental one when my daughter was five we did a disney trip with the whole family there were 16 of us that went and she and I took one day of the seven that we were there and just she and I broke away to go get all of the princess signatures. And we had all day to do it so we could just take our time. We weren't waiting on anybody else. And it is one of my very favorite memories, just watching her face light up. Yeah, it, it was a Disney magic moment, um, but it, it's one of my very favorites. She bought her own princess dress that day. And we still have it and she's 25. So it's, it was a big deal. And then probably my funny one is <laughs> again, graceful. My mother, myself, my daughter were at a beach in South Carolina and we thought we were in good control and playing or one of us fell in the wave, right? Like lost our balance, fell as another one tried to help, then they fall. Then, so there's now like four of us on the ground trying to get up. It was hysterical. And we finally, you know, just kind of like, okay, we're just going to sit here one at a time. We will get up. Domino effect. Like, boop, 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 boop. yeah. That's what I was already to say. You beat me too. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking like dominoes. You all went down just like, don't, 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 don't. Too bad there wasn't anyone around because then you would just turn to human dominoes. That would have been even more funny right there. It would have. <laughs> knocking to a stranger. Like, oh, uh, well, hey, buddy. Yeah, I mean, it'd be a way to introduce ourselves, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> A way to make friends. Why not? It's it's awkward as crap, but why not, right? Guys, I think that's all. Is there anything you'd like to say, promote, any last-minute thoughts? Just thank you. Thank you for having us on here. 
Sam, and it's awesome to see you again. And it was great to meet both Leslie and Leah. And it's always fun to meet people who have the same passion as you. Thank you. Yes, for allowing me to be. I, you know, we kind of came to this as a, a last minute and a change in our directorship and stuff. And so I'm just grateful to have been able to be a part of it, to learn, to, to listen. And you're as awesome as I thought you were, Sam. So thanks for having me. Same. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, it's been awesome meeting you ladies and Sam, you as well. If I had any parting gift or anything to say would be exactly what Lori said, that ABA now doesn't look like ABA 15 plus years ago. If you're interested or have questions, please reach out to anybody, any center. They'd be more than willing to answer any questions that you have. Um, and Sam, I can't wait to listen to your podcast on now punishment procedures. I'm excited. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Please tune in for another episode coming very soon. Holy joy, listen to me ramble. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>